0: You're listening to Al Pastor, the show that helps you love God, love your neighbor, and eat more tacos. I'm your host, Pastor Brian. Welcome to the show. Well, hello. I want to welcome you today to uh, our episode. We're going to go through 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. I hope you had an absolutely amazing Thanksgiving. Um, You wouldn't believe me if I told you, but Marcia can testify. I actually had tacos for Thanksgiving. Um, I'm not a big fan of Thanksgiving food. I never have been. I just don't like it, really, any of it. I really don't care for turkey, all all the sides. I know I'm crazy, but Marcia was very gracious, and she made me some tacos, so praise the Lord for that. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I hope you had a wonderful time with your loved ones and for all those that you are close with. So today's reading is 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 14 through 26. And I'm going to continue doing what I've been doing. Although I have to admit, it's a little bit, uh, it's not burdensome work. It's just extra work going Uh, Line by line, I have the personality where I just get so in depth that it's hard for me to just be surface on some of these things. But um, I'm going to try my best and we're going to go through it. So let's start in verse number 14. Paul says, Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about with words to no profit, to the ruins, to the ruin of hearers. Now, what Paul is doing is he's now switching gears from what he was doing yesterday in our reading. He goes from some personal exhortation and encouragement, um, and now he's switching to what this all means in a practical sense. Now, notice that there is an assumption on Paul's part that what Timothy is going through is temporary. This momentary lapse of faith, this paralysis of fear uh, and anxiety of inevitably— Um, suffering, which is just over the horizon, Timothy's going to understand that in all things and in every way, Jesus is faithful. In a word, we would say this is grace. In other words, Paul knows that Timothy's going to get back up on that horse, and with that in mind, he now is instructing Timothy on some talking points and goals of bringing in some much-needed correction into the body of Christ. He wants Timothy to remind his sheep, the hearers, of these very same things. What things is Paul referencing here? Well, most certainly this is the true gospel. We would also say the simplicity of the gospel. The very things that Paul's been instructing Timothy about are applicable for everyone, for you and I. It is the uh, essential parts of the mission and the vision of God that should be repeated, rehearsed often about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, keep in mind, I went over this in some detail, we're not going to do it again, but that this is a very, very personal and intimate letter. So what Paul says in one sentence is absolutely loaded, and it has a, it has a history it has been talked about, undoubtedly, not only personally between Paul and Timothy, but even publicly by Paul over the span of several years. And so the foundation that Timothy has is rock solid. He comes from good stock. This is why, folks, that we we don't read the Bible in isolation. Let me tell you what I mean by that. A lot of times we'll just open up God's Word and we'll cherry-pick a verse from here and from there, But this is really can lead to some unhealthy habits of not contextualizing the Scripture. Where the real benefit comes from is when we are doing what we're doing, and what I've been preaching on just about every Sunday, just about every podcast, it is consuming God's Word on a regular basis. And so when we see God's Word as one unified story about His plan of redemption— You begin to make connections. Things begin to make sense. And so there are ideas, there are concepts that all build upon each other that are interwoven throughout God's word. I also want you to know that to get to this place that it takes time. It takes endurance. It takes discipline. It takes patience. So don't get discouraged. Don't get disheartened. If you feel like you're not connecting the dots, if you're not understanding certain things, keep reading. Keep reading. That's what I would tell you. Keep going on. So Paul goes on to say to Timothy, he says, I want you to take these things and now notice the language. He says, I want you to charge them. We got to hold on for a second because this word is important. To charge somebody implies that it is a holy moment. I want you I want to make sure that we pause long enough so that we get the picture. You don't charge someone in a casual way. It carries the idea of assembling together in a holy moment with God being present as 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 the the one that is watching and then the words of correction will be laid out. This is also known as the concept of what is called the a biblical rebuke. Now rebuking is not just saying, hey, you ain't right, you you need you're going to hell. That's not just a rebuke. A rebuke also brings with it a word of correction so somebody can get back on track. And so if you're not if you're not bringing in corrective instruction, you're not properly rebuking. you're just condemning. And this, this bringing somebody back on track takes teaching. That's what it takes. So Paul wants Timothy to charge them to not strive about with words to no profit. That's how Paul phrases it. Simply put, this means that quit talking about things that are non-essential, that you think need to be made essential, now, for them, this would include genealogies, dietary habits, Sabbath observance. It would also include obscure backroom secret teachings with ideas that don't line up with God's Word. And all of these things, folks, by the way, contradict the gospel. But even worse, there is a contamination factor. And the result is, as Paul would say, it, it will bring ruin to the hearers. I hope this will serve as a reminder to us that what we entertain, what we hear, what we consume is not a trivial matter. Just as God's word is a seed, so are the lies of the world and the enemy. And so the devil, I'm not trying to give him credit, but he is a cunning serpent. And in today's world, he has packaged his lies through every form of media, It's found within the textbooks that our children are learning. It's embedded in the music that you pump through your ear gates. It's saturated in the ideas of drunkenness and sexual immorality, the the, the normalization of the very things that God hates. Every commercial, every billboard, every 30-second short clip, everywhere we turn, there is a war on God and the gospel that is found within the pages of his word. This is why we need good seed, the true seed, faithful seed. Simply put, we need more of God's word in our lives. And so this sets up verse number 15 very well. Listen to this. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so in order for Timothy to take a stand, to combat, to refute, to get people back on the path that leads to eternal life, it's going to take some serious work that can only be done through the study of God's word. It's going to take diligent study, prayer. It's going to take sound teaching. Timothy's call is to be diligent. That means to be zealous, to be eager. It means to do your best. This is what the the original Greek word of diligent means. And then he goes on, he says, to present oneself to be approved by God. Think about that phrase, to present yourself to be approved. That means that there will be an exam. There will be an audit or a test. In doing what's necessary through a life of obedience, through your relationship with God, the result would be a passing grade. The result would be that you would stand in front of him and in front of others with no shame. You won't be ashamed of Jesus. You won't be ashamed of his word or what anyone else says or thinks about you. Now, the other benefit that's found here in rightly dividing the word of truth, we've got to ask this question, what does that mean? I hope to give you the best sense of this phrase, In context, and I'm giving this disclaimer, this is my interpretation. Rightly dividing literally means to cut straight. Now, there is a surgical allusion to a scalpel and surgery that is implied here. But most likely, this is in a much broader and bigger sense. It has to do with a path. It has to do with staying the course on the road to God with Jesus as the goal. Along this road, there are detours, there are hazards, there are obstacles all along the way that can take people off the path, off the course. And so the goal for Timothy is to rightly divide or to cut straight. We would say, Cut all the fluff, cut through all the nonsense, and clear a direct path to God when you handle his word. Again, I'm giving you big picture stuff here. When Timothy does this, it will be much, much easier for him to do what Paul tells him in verse 16. So listen to this. He says, to shun profane and idle babblings for they will increase to more ungodliness. Now think about the word shun. We would say avoid, don't go near, don't entertain all this silly talk that produces ungodliness. You know why? Because when you stick to God's word, it'll cut through all of that nonsense. Verse 17, he says, and their message will spread like cancer. Hemeneus? and or are of this sort. Now, the word for cancer here is actually gain green. This is a strong, strong description of the, the deadliness of false doctrine. Using this analogy, we should immediately see the severity of the issue that is at hand for Timothy here in Ephesus. Paul now does something unusual. He's naming names, Hymenaeus and Philetus now, Hymenaeus was included in Paul's first letter to Timothy. He was one that was handed over to Satan so that he would learn not to blaspheme. That's, that's some strong language. He's already been dealt with by Paul himself. And now this man is coming back and teaching a false gospel. And guess what? Paul's locked up. So who's got to handle him? Timothy's got to handle this guy now. Verse 18 He describes these men even further. He says that they have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. Let's break that down. He says that they've strayed. That means they've gotten off the path. They've deviated from the truth. They're taking a detour. But they still think that they are heading towards God. One of the things that was being spread is that the resurrection had already happened. Now, this is something that Paul has already handled in much, much detail. Actually, this is the premise of the letters to the good folks at Thessalonica, first and second Thessalonians. Paul also dedicates an entire chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 just about the topic of the resurrection. So let me help you understand this. The resurrection according to the scripture is the moment when we receive, listen carefully, our glorified bodies. There are multiple resurrection events yet to come. One of them is the rapture, or we would also say the catching away of the saints. And the Bible is clear that the resurrection is a bodily resurrection. Jesus is the first in this sense to be raised from the dead with a glorified body. In fact, Colossians puts it this way, he is our first fruits. Now, because Paul is not addressing a specific brand or belief system, this is open to speculation and interpretation. So I wanna, I wanna cut a straight path for you. I wanna rightly divide the word of truth. I wanna make this simple. In the time this was written, there were a number of possibilities. One of them would be a mixture of, of biblical terminology that means using Christian language um mingled in with Greek philosophy now for the Greek culture a bodily resurrection would seem really really far-fetched and so in order to accommodate or to lay down to this idea that uh, we're not too sure about this whole bodily resurrection thing it doesn't make a whole lot of sense what the folks were doing is they begin to say oh well that's That language there is symbolic. It's a spiritual sense. Yes, you're resurrected, but the moment you accept Christ, you're resurrected. Of course, there's no bodily resurrection. So it's in this sense that the resurrection was being taught as if it already happened. Now, I can't tell you for certain, but I wrote down just a couple of sentences of what I think some of the teaching might have sounded like. Here's what some of the false teachers might say. They might say, yes, Jesus provides salvation. But you know, he really didn't rise from the grave in bodily form. Those who've seen him, those witnesses that you've heard about, they were mistaken. Jesus didn't actually rise with a body. He was a spirit. And our resurrection is not literal. It's spiritual. Now, again, I've told you I'm making this very simplistic. There's a lot you can study out on this. If you're interested, let me know. If you're like, hey, I'm good, then no worries, you're good. But if you want, I've got I've got a lot on this. Um, but there was there was also I want to make sure that we cover this. There was a duality of thought concerning the physical and the spiritual. So in the Greek first century world, um, which was embedded deeply indoctrinated into the normal psyche of, of these folks. Later, this developed to be called what is known as Gnosticism. And it's the belief that any deeds you committed in your body on this earth had no effect in your spirit, to your spirit man. So in other words, do what you want. It doesn't affect you. Doesn't that sound familiar? Hey, I can go sleep with anybody I want to. I can go get drunk anytime I want to. I'm still a Christian. I still wear a cross around my neck. This, this, this. in reality, there's nothing new under the sun. This is what we would call Gnostic, secret teaching. And this happens when people think that they know better than God's word. There's a verse that says that there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death. And so one of the temptations that we always face is that we think we know better. We think that we can become God. Well, if I was God, I would do this, and surely God wouldn't act this way. And so this can open the door to a lot of justification, a lot of rationalization of sin. And folks, this is contrary to true biblical teaching. What we do in the body And in this life matters. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so some of these heresy teachers, they would sound really, really good. And here's where it gets even more interesting. They would even use and incorporate some of Paul's very own language of having been raised with Christ— now, the point is this, we need to clearly make sure that we define terms and we're able to discern what someone means by the terms they use. I'm gonna just briefly read to you a small snippet of commentary from Bruce Barton, and I think that he sums this up really well. Listen to this. He says, Colts often find a hearing by using familiar language, quoting the Bible, or appearing to agree with the teaching of the Christian church. To the casual or uninformed listener, they seem to be headed for truth, but they swerve and miss it at the last moment. Scriptures are taken out of context and are used to prove their points, though the biblical phrases used have nothing to do with the teaching they are promoting. Words like Christian, believer, faith, and salvation can all be used to set a person up for error By giving the atmosphere a familiarity. The primary weapons, listen to this now, the primary weapons against such attacks are not the accumulation of exhausted knowledge on every cult. Instead, we must constantly increase our biblical literacy as well as consistently develop our relationship with Christ. That's powerful. Let me read this last sentence again we must constantly increase our biblical literacy as well as consistently develop our relationship with Christ. This is the idea of a bank teller. A bank teller doesn't go and study a bunch of counterfeit bills. That would just be ridiculous. You know what the bank teller is is trained to study? The real deal. So if you have a $100 bill in front of you, you need to know what a real $100 bill looks like. You don't have to waste your time looking at all these sloppy counterfeits, and you know some of them are very sophisticated. But this is this is the idea we need to spend our time, so we don't have to get wrapped up. You can study different cults and sects and uh, things like that. However, our focus primarily should be on God's word. Verse nineteen, he says, nevertheless. The solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Oh, this is so, so good. Buckle up. Paul begins this verse with a nevertheless. He's saying, regardless of what others are teaching apart from the truth. And what is the truth? The solid foundation of God is that Jesus Christ himself is our rock, our chief cornerstone. He's the one that resurrected in bodily form that speaks to the hope that we have in him. Now, I have to disclose this. There are different interpretations regarding the identity of, you know, what exactly is this solid foundation. I'm not even going to entertain some of the alternative um, interpretations I'm just going to tell you straight out what I believe it is, okay? You take it for what it's worth, and you study it out for yourself. I believe that this is very, very clear, that the foundation is Jesus himself. And yes, the church is part. We, are, we enter into that foundation. We are in Christ Jesus. The people of God are being built into the house of God, living stones, as Peter would say. Now, Paul uses a well-known term from the construction of major buildings, especially in the ancient world, that's even still implemented today. When the cornerstone is laid, usually it is imprinted with a seal. Now, you might see an actual seal on some older buildings, or maybe even a plaque to commemorate the occasion. But the seal would also imply ownership. I think it's abundantly clear and, in fact, proves that the foundation, of course, is Jesus. And we're built on that solid rock. Now, I want us to notice what is written on this seal because this is important. I think you're going to like this. It says that the Lord knows those who are his. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, the first thing we've got to acknowledge here is that Paul is pulling a phrase from a very familiar portion of Torah. It comes from number 16. Now, I've got to set this up for you, and then we'll draw some conclusions. Remember when Israel was in the wilderness, the people had been grumbling. They'd been complaining. Word had begun to spread. I mean, this was like cheese Cheesemate on one of the Arvin Facebook groups. And what people were saying is, you know what all the hard stuff we're going through? We're out here in the desert. We don't even have good food. This is all... The fault of Moses and Aaron—they were complaining, and then the people begin to reject, as a result of this, the word of God in the instructions that Moses was giving from God, and so they they begin to rationalize, according to their own wisdom, which is apart from God. They, you know what? I don't think we need to follow what Moses is saying. In fact, they came to a point where they said, you know what? We're holy people. But guess what? Their holiness wasn't based on God's way. It was based on what they saw in their own eyes, their own path. It wasn't the straight path. Now, here's what happened. 250 of the top leaders gathered together, and they said, we're going to come against Moses and Aaron. Now, with this in mind, let me read you two short verses out of Numbers. This is found in numbers 16, 4 through 5. And you're gonna gonna like this. It says, So when Moses heard it, all the stuff they had been doing, all the, all the, you know, in Arvin, we'd say all the masa they were talking, right? He fell on his face and he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Listen carefully, tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy. And who will cause him to come near him? The one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near him. Now, if you're if you're not familiar with this story, I encourage you, go through and read all of number 16. It's great. But in essence, here's what Moses was saying. He's saying, all right, guys, if you think you're holy, if you think you're righteous on your own, apart from God's word, apart from what I've been teaching, then go ahead, prove it. He's like, tomorrow... We'll come, and you'll have an opportunity to show your holiness. Now, understand, folks, that without holiness, no one can approach the Lord. In fact, in Hebrews, it says that, and it says that our Lord is a consuming fire. Now, to just to summarize this chapter, and then we'll get back into Timothy. The next morning, the sons of Korah presented themselves before Moses. Now, please understand they had time to think about this. They got to sleep on it, right? Moses had said, listen to this now, Moses had charged them. Very interesting, the same thing Paul wants Timothy to do. So after having a night to think about it, with resolve, they showed up in what they thought was gonna be a showdown with Moses. But you know what, it wasn't Moses they were coming against. It was God. And the Bible says that the earth opened up and swallowed them and their households. Now, here's the key to what Moses said. He said, the Lord will show who is his. And this is the phrase that Paul told Timothy. This is exactly what Timothy needed to hear. And so what do you think Timothy took from that? Timothy is facing some folks that are coming against him that are threatening him, that are trying to achieve the path to the Lord in their own eyes. Paul's telling Timothy, he's saying, look, man, preach the word. Don't back down. The Lord is gonna sort all this out. And there is coming a day of judgment. Just as it was typified by uh, the Lord opening up the ground and swallowing up the sons of Korah, the Lord knows who are his. So, Timothy, make sure you tell them to repent. Make sure you tell them to turn away from their iniquity, charge them. But also, Timothy, you are not to take part in what they are teaching. You need to stand firm. Verse 20, Paul now changes his metaphor from a building, from building a house, to now what's inside the house. So let's read this. He says, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Now I want you to think about this. If you had somebody special over for dinner and you pull out what some people would call the fine china, right? Like if if they're special, you're going to pull out the best plates, the best silverware. Now, normally you wouldn't eat with these. What would you normally use? Just your, your your normal, everyday utensils. For them, that would be like wood or clay. Now, imagine if somebody important really was coming over. Let's say it was the president. Joe Biden's knocking on your door. Now, I already know. See how I get you? Some of you say, well, I wouldn't open the door if it was Joe Biden. I'm teasing. But let's say he shows up and you're like, well, hello, Mr. President. I'm going to serve you some food on a paper plate you know what you've just done? You've dishonored him. (laughs) That would be dishonorable, wouldn't it? Here's the point. Within the house of God, which, by the way, are also the people of God, everyone has a role. Everyone is a vessel. Some are used for honor. Some are used for dishonor. Now, this is the false teaching that's occurring Under the umbrella of the people of God, or under the umbrella, quote-unquote, air quotes, Christianity, the dishonor is the dishonoring of the gospel of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. So with this in mind now, let's read verse 21. He says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. I don't know about you but I see grace written all over this. I mean do you see grace? Do you see the reconciliation in this? It is an opportunity for these folks to turn away from what is dishonorable, to turn away from like serving with just these paper plates. This is the false teaching, to repent. What a what a gracious thing to do Timothy to be able to tell these folks to repent. You know, today people get upset when they hear the word repent, because everybody thinks that they're so lovely and that they're so wonderful and that they're so pious and righteous. And so when they hear repent, a wall goes up. But in reality, the most gracious thing that can be afforded to us is an opportunity to repent and to be cleansed. And then notice what Paul says. He says, if you do that, if you do what? If you If you repent, you will be cleansed and you'll be useful for the master. Wow. Verse 22. Now the focus is off these knuckleheads. It's back on Timothy. So notice what Paul says. He says, flee youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now remember how well Paul knows Timothy. They've got a history. They've spent a lot of time together. Now, youthful lust can cover a wide variety of things. And I, for one, can't even begin to speculate. Does Paul have a particular youthful lust in mind? Does he know Timothy really well? Or is he speaking in general? And to be honest with you guys, I don't know. But the youthful lust can be a number of things. It could be the pursuit of pleasure, sexual and worldly It could be the attraction to the ego. It could be the affinity to being popular, to being well-liked. All of these things can come under youthful lust. But here's what Paul says. He says, flee them, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Here's the application. When you are pursuing God, God will put people in your path that are like-minded. Now, also, in the the reverse, when you're not pursuing God, you will also attract those same like-minded people. But here's what happens oftentimes. Let's say you make a decision to go after God with all your heart, like as Paul says here, like who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. You are going to have some change in the dynamics of your relationships, now, if you have friends, and I hate to even say this, even among the body of Christ, if you have friends that are not pursuing God with a pure heart, you're going you're gonna to notice some tension that can build up in that relationship. And it's very likely, I'm trying not to stretch here interpretively, but it is very likely that Timothy is having a hard time relating or even getting close to anyone in the ministry. And so Paul is saying again, listen, Timothy, let God take care of it. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. He'll bring in the right people and the right situations that are going to help you along the way. And please understand, Paul knows this. He's not going to be around much longer. So just as a father, he, he Paul's a father to Timothy. Paul knows he's about to die. And he's going to say, well, who's who's Timothy going to be able to turn to when I'm gone? Right? This is like a coming of age moment for Timothy. Verse 23, he says, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Boy, that'll preach today. What's a foolish, how do you classify a foolish and ignorant dispute? That would be trying to argue for the sake of arguing when 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 neither of you have the intention of really learning. So let's say that I got invited to a debate and I was to debate the merits of same-sex marriage or the use of gender pronouns today. But if the person that I am debating or disputing has already settled in their mind and in their heart and they're not open to learning, this would be considered a foolish or ignorant dispute. And so Paul says, Understand, this is only going to generate strife. There's no winners or losers here. It's only a losing side. Now, <clears throat> on the reverse of that, if someone came and they said, hey, can you explain to me what the Bible actually says about a variety of topics? Adultery, homosexuality, abortion, whatever. all these hot-button issues, right? And they had a genuine curiosity, and they were willing to put in the time and learn? That's not what Paul's talking about here. So I hope you understand what he's saying. And here's the reason. When you begin to generate strife, this provides an opportunity for the flesh. Okay? And verse 24 says, and the, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. What is quarreling? Quarreling is when we cross that line into the flesh. But he says that we must be gentle to all. What is what is one of the fruits of the Spirit, folks? Right? Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, right? Self-control. So we're talking about the flesh and the Spirit here. So if you're going to enter into things just because, you know, you like to get all worked up or you're attracted to drama or whatever it is, don't do it. Don't do it. Be gentle. This is what it means. You got to be gentle. <laughs> able And notice the next part. Able to teach able to teach and believe me how do we frame that in our society today wow and patient i believe me i need more patience in my life folks and then he says him humility but notice this part correcting those who are in opposition correcting those who are in opposition boy that that's pretty strong right there that means setting them back on the path that involves exhortation, that involves charging, that involves rebuke. And then he says, if, here's the benefit, if God perhaps will grant them repentance. Now, Paul's saying, I can't I can't tell you. I mean, these guys have gone pretty far. Maybe God will let, allow them to repent so that they may know what? what? What is it that Paul wants them to know? Ah, see, you're getting it, the truth. And where do we find truth, folks? It's found in God's word. Jesus said in in John 17, he said, Lord, sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. Jesus Himself is truth. But you can't find out who Jesus is unless you read his word. And then notice verse 26, that they may come to their senses. Holy cow, that's a that's a that means like literally it means so that they can sober up, right? They, they need to wake up. They need to sober up. It's as if they are in a drunken stupor. Paul would say it like this in Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Come to your senses. Escape the snare of the devil. What's a snare? That's like a trap. Think of a bear trap. You're out in the woods and you accidentally step in a bear trap. And now you're caught in it and nobody's there to help you. And you've been crying out like, hello, hello, help. I mean, you know. This is what it is. This is what the devil does. Escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive. They're now a prisoner on a chain to do what? To do his will. Listen, guys, this is serious business, and this is serious talk here in Timothy I don't know how long I've gone. I'm not going to worry about it. I hope you guys are blessed. Hey, listen, if you've got any questions, any concerns, you're like, Pastor, can you, can you just hit on this one verse or this or that? Listen, you guys know this. This is this is what I do. I love it. Um, so I hope you're blessed. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Al Pastor with Brian Overturf. If you found value in this, please subscribe and get updates. Most places podcasts are available. We're right here on Anchor FM through Spotify. Also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and iHeartRadio. I hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Until then, we'll see you later.